Welcome to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. This teaching is from our 2023 Advent series, Christ the True and Better. During this series, you will explore how all of redemptive history pointed to Jesus, who is the true and better man, Son, Deliverer, and King. We hope this helps you understand and apply God's Word in your life today. Uh, in this Advent season, we are looking at Christ, the true and better. You, you know how to read your Old Testaments, right? Uh, on every page, we see uh, institutions and individuals that are pencil sketches of the one who is promised in Genesis 3, the Messiah. And so every page of our Old Testament is pointing to Jesus Christ. And today we're looking at Adam, the first man, who points us to the true and better man, Jesus, the true and better Adam. One of the most uh, important teenagers in American history that you've never heard of was a 16-year-old girl named Barbara Rose Johns. On April 23, 1951, Barbara led uh, 400 other black students uh, on a walkout of her segregated and dilapidated high school in Farmville, Virginia. Barbara Johns and the students she led promised a boycott till the local all-white school board addressed the disparities between her school and the all-white school up the street. Leaking roofs, tar paper shacks, no heat in winter, no fans in summer, sitting on broken chairs at broken desks in a broken system. And then when the school board refused to hear Barbara John's complaints, as she convinced the NAAC to support her lawsuit against them. And that suit was combined with a few others and it became Brown versus Board of Education. Three years later in 1954, the Supreme Court ruled on Brown and outlawed public school segregation forever. Before the Greensboro sit-ins, before the Montgomery bus boycott, while Martin Luther King was still in elementary school, a 16-year-old girl launched the fight for desegregation in schools, and she won. Since 1909, a statue of uh, Robert E. Lee has represented Virginia in the U.S. Capitol building. Next year, that'll change. They're replacing Robert E. Lee with a statue of a 16-year-old girl. Maybe you were a beneficiary of Barbara John's defiance, and you never even heard of her. All of us live lives shaped by the decisions made by people in the past. People we'll never meet, never know, maybe never even hear about. Sometimes their decisions shape our lives for the better, sometimes for the worse. In 1877, it was discovered that 48 men and women incarcerated in the New York penal system were all related to a man named Max Jukes, who had been a guest of that system about half a century earlier. When they studied Max Jukes' family tree, they discovered Max had been related to seven murders, 70, 76 convicted criminals, 18 brothel keepers, 120 prostitutes, and over 200 homeless paupers. Salmon Rushdie writes, there, there is no magic on earth strong enough to wipe out the legacies of our parents. 
These days, we don't really like to admit our lives are largely influenced by others. It's popular today to, to insist that I determine my own life, and no one else has anything to say about it. Jean-Paul Sartre argued in the last century that it's impossible for both human freedom and a sovereign God to coexist. He said, it's just not possible. It's a contradiction. Either you have freedom or God decides. But both things cannot be true at once. It depends, I suppose, on what you mean by human freedom. Sartre defined freedom as complete autonomy. In the Greek, auto means self and nomos means law. So for Sartre, freedom was self-law. He claimed freedom meant I decide what's right for me. I'm a law unto myself. That summarizes our current culture, does it not? Right and wrong are fluid concepts varying according to persons and circumstances. We each should only do what is right for us. That sounds okay until you think about being married to someone who lives that way. I'm not arguing here that we don't have choice. Of course, we can make some choices. The decisions we make about our education and our career and our relationships, they, they do shape your life. But I do want you to see that the story of your life doesn't happen aside from the stories of those who have gone before you, or even necessarily the stories of those who are with you now. The reason you weren't forced to attend a segregated school wasn't because of your choice. It's largely because 73 years ago, a 16-year-old girl took a courageous and principled stand and changed the nation. One person can impact many millions who follow. And that's the point I'd like to leave with you today. Ultimately, all our individual stories are told within the context of a much bigger story. It's really two stories about two men who continue to shape the world we live in. There's Adam and there's Jesus. Both of them archetypes for humanity, representatives of two human conditions and two very different human destinies. So with that, by way of introduction, let's jump into our text from 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 15, verses 45 to 49. Hear now the word of our living and redeeming God. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural, and after that, the spiritual. The first man was of the dust of the earth. The second man is of heaven. And so are those who are of the earth. And as is the heavenly man, as is the heavenly man, so are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, so shall we bear the image of the heavenly man. The word Adam just means humanity. So when you look at Adam in the garden, you're seeing humanity. He's patient zero. He's the source of all human DNA. We are not descended from different roots. We are all from the same source. There aren't some of us who are different or better. We are all children of Adam. The good part of that is because Adam was made in the image of God, so we are all God's image bearers. The bad part of that is that we all share Adam's sin, 
and we all share in the consequences of that sin. In Hebrew, the word Adam is closely associated with the, the word Adama. Adama just means soil or earth. And so Adam doesn't just subdue or rule the earth. In an important sense, he is the earth. And in Genesis 1, uh, verses 26 to 28, God places Adam, his ultimate creation, his image bearer, God places Adam over all the fish of the sea, over all the birds of heaven, over everything that moves on the earth. It's a weighty responsibility. Because his name is humanity, then what happens to this one man happens to all of humankind. And because the root of Adam's name means earth, then what happens to him happens to the earth. And so God, so God makes Adam the ruler over everything God has created. He is to subdue, to innovate, to understand, to reign, to steward, and to multiply. In a, in a sense, like God, he is to create. He's singular in his responsibility and his duty. And he is without sin. God makes Adam and Eve the king and queen of his entire creation. They are literally made for one another. And the throne they are to rule is in the midst of a garden that God himself plants. Here's what God tells us in, uh, here's what God tells them and us in Genesis 2, verses 16 and 17. You are to eat from, the tree, from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Notice the first phrase of verse 16. You are free. You are free. God's garden isn't like the garden you read about in Greek mythology, uh, the Garden of Hesperides, where a hundred-headed dragon guards uh, the garden from intruders. Humanity has never been more free than at this moment. God creates the garden, and he gives it to humankind. He doesn't put up signs that say, stay off the grass. He doesn't say, don't pick the flowers. He doesn't make you eat your vegetables. He says, you're free. There's only one rule. Don't eat from one tree, the forbidden fruit. We imagine uh, God must be some sort of cosmic killjoy if he wants to, to keep something from us. It must be because that thing is better than everything else. But if we think that way, it, it only goes to show you how far corruption, the corruption of the fall, has, has uh, messed with your thinking. And then in chapter 3, now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And this is the question we've been asking ever since. Did God really say? That's where Satan wants our focus, questioning God. Whether or not we can trust the word of God, or whether we will succumb to the lure of personal autonomy, as Sartre suggested we must, and strive to be our own God. Here's how Eve handles the serpent's question in the next two verses. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. And so here we see the very first mistake humanity makes in the history of the world. Here we get a clue that it's not God who is the killjoy legalist. It's humans. Because Eve adds a second rule to the one God gave. 
God forbids Adam and Eve from eating, eating the fruit of this single tree. But here Eve says, we're not even to touch it. But God never said that. In fact, from what we can tell, God might well have been perfectly happy if all the fruit of the tree had been plucked and thrown into the Euphrates. Instead, humanity decides we know better than God. But Satan is a wily serpent. Here's his response. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You will not certainly die, says Satan. And now Satan contradicts God. He doesn't just add to the law as Eve did. He calls God a liar. But Satan doesn't just contradict God. He plays to the deepest desires of Eve and Adam. He says, God knows when you eat of it, you will be like him, knowing what he knows. Have you heard the old King James version, pride goeth before a fall? It's a paraphrase of Proverbs 16, 18. Pride goeth before a fall. And if it's apropos of anything, it's apropos of the fall. First we see Satan, Satan's pride. He contradicts what God has said. Then he, then he tempts Eve to defy God. Uh, Isaiah also gives us a picture of Satan's pride. He says uh, in Isaiah 14, uh, Verses 13 and 14, you said in your heart, he's talking about Satan now, you said in your heart, I will ascend to the heavens, I will raise my throne above the stars of God, I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly, on the utmost heights of Mount Zaphon, I will ascend above the tops of the clouds, I will make myself like the Most High. That's what Satan offers Adam and Eve. He says if they'll eat of the prohibited tree, the forbidden fruit, they will be like God. That's Satan's great promise. He says, you will be like God. You will know everything God knows. That's us, is it not? That's Jean-Paul Sartre's autonomy working in us. We don't want to follow the law made by someone else. We want to make our own law. That's Adam. That's Eve. That's us. And so Adam and Eve betray the God who has created them, the, the image uh, 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 his very image that the God who breathed life into them has given them his own garden, made them free, and showered them with every good gift. All of that. And they want more. They go from nothing to dust to being appointed king and queen of all creation. And it's not enough. They want to be like God. In the book of Luke, Luke calls Adam God's son. God made Adam and kissed him with the breath of physical and spiritual life. Then just one chapter later, Adam betrays his father. And so God exiles Adam from the garden that God had personally planted for him. And the rest is history. Like Max Jukes, a criminal stands at the top of our family tree. And ever since... Uh, he allied, he allied himself with Satan and made an enemy of God. All of humanity has been estranged and alienated from our true home. Maybe you think that's unfair. Maybe you don't think you should be responsible for the sin of one man a long time ago. But if you think that, then you have either a very high view of your own thought life and conduct or a very low view of God's. Because the truth is, that the consequences of Adam's sin are the only way to explain the world around us. 
We share a family history. We are all in on the family inheritance. Our history is that we are alienated from our true home and estranged from our true family. And exile isn't the only thing we inherited. We also inherited Adam's grasping and pride. Like, like Adam, we believe God has withheld the best from us. And so rather than find our purpose in God, we try to find our joy in our life and security in other things. John Calvin writes in the Institutes that the heart of man is a perpetual forge of idols. We are idol factories. We are constantly turning to little gods to, to find pleasure and meaning. Maybe it's money or sex or power, or maybe it's something else, anything you put above God. It's slavery to sin, as genetically coded in our DNA as is our eye color and our height. But, but a pride and lack of faith are not the only things we, uh, we uh, members of the human family have inherited from Adam. There's also selfishness. We want what we want. We pursue our own selfish desires. And we do it not just to the exclusion of others, but in spite of them. It's, it's dog-eat-dog. It's get out of my way or get run over. It's the autonomy of Sartre. It's Adam. It's Eve. It's Satan. It's us. We don't admit that, of course. Actually, just the reverse. We think of ourselves as pretty good people. I deserve kudos uh, because I helped a couple of grannies across the street yesterday. It doesn't matter that I had to run a granny over on the way to church this morning. It's the trade of rationalization. We are really good at convincing ourselves that, that we're good and everyone else is the problem. And even when we're called out, even when we have to face our sin face to face, we blame circumstances or we blame other people. Or we say, gosh, I don't know what came over me. The truth is, nothing came over me. All of that pride and selfishness and meanness came out of me. It came from a dark place, deep in the heart of every human. If you've ever felt that way, you're not alone. The Apostle Paul wrote almost half the New Testament, and even he struggled. In Romans 7:19, he says, For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do. This I keep doing. So you see the problem. We, we are inheritors of Adam's sin. His DNA runs through everyone because we are all perched somewhere in his family tree. We are like sweet-smelling flowers cut from their stalks and wrenched from the soil that gives them nourishment. We don't look dead. We look okay. We maybe even look beautiful for a little while. We can still accomplish wonderful things. We can make the whole room smell better. We can be a positive force for a little while. But like cut flowers, we are perishing. We have no life in us. Like dead flowers, humanity is headed for the compost heap. And it's not just true physically, it's true spiritually as well. Our text in verses 46 and 47 say, the spiritual did not come first, but the natural. And after that, the spiritual. The first man was of the dust of the earth, the second man is of heaven. Physically, we are made from dust, and our destiny is to return to dust. As children of Adam, we cannot change it, because we cannot change our essence. Dust we are, and to dust we shall return. But spiritually, we're also estranged from the God of life, and, and, and if something radical doesn't change, 
will be alienated and estranged forever. We can only ever have a future hope if our basic essence is transformed, both physically and spiritually. As dusty, earthbound creatures, we have no hope apart from heaven. The, the Bible says spiritual death is akin to being lost in outer darkness. In Matthew 8, Jesus says it's weeping and gnashing of teeth. He's saying it's hell. No light, no warmth, no belonging, no comfort, no hope. Put out, driven away, cut off. Or as Jude tells us, it's blackest darkness forever. And so Adam and Eve's alliance with Satan brings sin and shame and guilt and fear and death into the world. They bring suffering and pain and heartache and disease and disaster into the world. That's what you're heir to. That's our inheritance left to us by our father, Adam. And you say, how horrible. You say, how could a good God, a loving God, an all-powerful God, let that happen? You're right. It is horrible. And you're outraged. You should be outraged. There's a clip that makes the rounds on social media every couple years, uh, Facebook and YouTube and such, and it's a video of uh, Stephen Fry, the, the British actor who is a, an outspoken atheist. The clip is actually, uh, I think, six or seven years old now, but it keeps coming back around. In fact, uh, it has about 10 million views on YouTube alone. Anyway, Stephen Fry is, is being interviewed, and he's asked, what would you say to God when you die? If there is a God, what will you say to him? And Stephen Fry accuses God. He says, God must be some kind of monster for creating a world so full of evil. He says, bone cancer and children? What's that about? How dare you? How dare you create a world in which there is such misery that is not our fault? It's not right. Stephen Fry has a problem with evil. He shakes his fist at God and he demands God answer his complaint. He demands God justify himself. And that's why this clip keeps going viral, why it keeps coming around, because people have a problem with evil, and, and they think the fact of evil is, a, is an excuse to turn away from God. And, and what I'd like to say to Stephen Fry and, and all the other atheists who use evil as a, as a reason not to believe, what I'd like to say to them, you're not angry enough. You believe in evil, but you don't believe in God. Then on what basis... Do you judge something evil? That's what brought C.S. Lewis from atheism to Christianity. He writes in Mere Christianity that his problem with God was based on the universe being cruel and unjust. But then he realized the very idea of justice required to him to have some sense of there being a source of justice. He says, you can't expect a crooked line to be straight unless you first have some idea of what a straight line looks like. So when Stephen Fry calls the universe evil, what's he comparing it to? Where did he get the idea of evil in the first place? If God is like Zeus, there's no point to the question of evil. The believers in Zeus understood him to be capricious and, and morally inept. He wasn't loving or good. In fact, he looked a lot like Adam, except bigger. Or if Stephen Fry's God is biology, naturalism, humanism, if it's evolution, if we're just random accidents, clever but, but clueless, then again, there is no problem with evil. If ultimate reality is a, a cold and indifferent universe, then it doesn't care about your ideas of right or wrong, good or evil. Your feelings are inconsequential. Bone cancer in children might be awful. It, it might be terrible. It might be tragic. 
But it's not evil because neither Zeus nor the universe deal in any such moral categories. Some people win the lottery, some people don't. But if that's all there is, then your idea of evil is just that. It's your idea, it's a, it's a personal opinion. Disease that leads to death is just the universe's way of thinning the herd. Your genocide is my gain as I take what you've left for me and mine. Doesn't sound right, does it? Of course not. We know what evil looks like. We pretty much all agree, if not when it's being done to others, at least when it's being done to us. Stephen Fry knows evil when he sees it, but he doesn't have a big enough problem with it because Stephen Fry has exchanged the idea of a good God with an indifferent universe that doesn't give a fig for his opinions about right or wrong. What Stephen Fry needs, what we all need, is less humanity and more heaven. That's Jesus' prayer, right? Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Where'd Stephen Fry and the rest of us get the idea that God was the problem and humanity was the solution? I can only assume he hasn't read his Bible. Consider the book of Job, 42 chapters of trouble and suffering and pain. And, and right next to the book of Job is the book of uh, Psalms, 150 songs and prayers of praise to God. And uh, 62 of them, I'm sorry, 65 of them are laments, hearts crying out to God because they don't understand their suffering. How long, O oh Lord, will you forget me forever? Uh, Psalm 10.1, why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Psalm 22.1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And on and on they go. Why the laments? Why the book of Job? Because God is telling us we're right to have a problem with evil, with disease, with innocent suffering, with death. And look, only Christianity says that. We're the only ones who believe in an all-powerful, all-loving all good God. It's only Christians who must reconcile the idea of evil with that kind of God. The Muslims don't have to do it. The Hindus don't have to do it. The Buddhists and the Zoroastrians and the Baha'i don't have to do it. The gods of those religions aren't personal. They aren't all loving. They aren't all good. To those religions, right and wrong, good and evil, they're malleable. They're moving targets. It's only the Christian God. Man-made religions don't have an all-powerful and all-loving God because they look at the world around them to create their gods. If you had to create a God based on how the world looks, what kind of God would you come up with? My guess is that it'd be a God that looks a lot more like the gods of Rome or Egypt or Babylonia. In, in truth, if the world was your standard, God would look a lot more like Satan. That's what Jesus says in, in uh, the book of John, in three different chapters, he says, Satan is the prince of the world. In 2 Corinthians 4, Paul calls him the God of this age. If you looked at the world to see what God was like, then Stephen Fry might be right. God would look like an utter monster. He would look like Satan. But Christians don't look at the world to figure out what God looks like, do we? We look at Jesus. God doesn't give Job an answer for Job's suffering. He doesn't give the writers the laments uh, uh, an answer for their pain. He doesn't give us an answer. But he does give us a person. He gives us Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ doesn't give, give us an answer. He joins us in our suffering. 
Jesus is the true and ultimate Job, the, the actual innocent sufferer who goes all the way to the cross and takes on to himself the suffering of all ages and all people. It's Jesus who's the true prophet who says, I'm like a sheep to the slaughter. He's the true psalmist who cries out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's the true lamb who is slain for the sins of the world. Jesus is the God who suffers. Without that picture of God, you'd be tempted to think that uh, the goodness of God and the suffering of humanity are contradictory. But you can't say that when the suffering God comes with his arms nailed wide open to embrace the children of Adam, who bleeds for those who have made themselves his enemy. We look at evil and we say, how horrible. But Jesus says it's worse than you think because in Adam, pride and selfishness and evil are our inheritance. All Adam has left us is the land of outer darkness. In Adam, we inherit hell. But thanks be to God for the second Adam. In him, we are called to heaven. From our text today, verse 48 says, As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are of heaven. Jesus joins us in our suffering, in our, in our pain, in our hate, in our evil world. He takes responsibility for Adam's betrayal, and he sets things right. During the three short years of his ministry, he forgives sin, he heals the stick, he restores the sight to the blind, he feeds the hungry, he raises the dead, he liberates, he frees, he renews, he demonstrates in the most powerful ways possible that everything Adam has broken, he can fix. And so we no longer have to be alienated from our true home or our true family. Instead, with Christ, we are brought into our father's household as sons and daughters and made citizens of heaven. I know the Stephen Fry's of the world aren't buying it. They think that, that he's a good man, he's a wonderful teacher, he's a moral philosopher, but that's not how Jesus refers to himself. He says he's the way, the truth, and the life. He says he is God the Son. In fact, in a few short weeks, we're going to celebrate his birthday, his incarnation. We, we celebrate when he was born uh, as a man. He's not only God the Son, but when he becomes a man, he also becomes God our brother. Where does this leave us? Do you think we're one big human family? Do you think our family's in trouble? Do you think we're all in this together? Are you tired of the suffering and pain and heartache and disappointment? Are you, uh, do, do, you, do you know the first law of holes? When you find yourself in one, stop digging. We're in a hole. And it's getting deeper. Do you think you can climb out on your own? Do you agree with uh, Salmon Rushdie that there's no magic that allows us to escape the legacy of our parents? Where do you think rescue is possible? Do you think Jesus is, is who he says he is? He says he's the son of God. He says he's our brother. He claims he'll fight for us. Take responsibility for our sin. Just as Adam has undone creation, Jesus comes to undo Adam's undoing and to renew all things. He's the reverse of Adam's pride. 
But the thing is, he only comes for those who know they need him. At one point, he tells uh, the religious leaders, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus isn't saying here that some people are healthy. He's saying everyone is sick, but only some people know it. He's come for those who are poor in spirit, who hunger for righteousness. They know they can never possess on their own. He comes for those who know they need a doctor. What takes precedence in your life? The autonomy of man as Sartre believed or the sovereignty of God as the Bible claims? It's Adam or it's Christ. That's the choice. It's always been the choice. But if Jesus is life, then to reject him is death. If he's love, then to reject him means alienation and estrangement permanently. If he is light, then to reject him means outer darkness. That's the choice. And no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter where you come from, Jesus has gone to hell and back to win your love. But the choice is still yours. What could be more fair? You come to Christ or you keep your inheritance in Adam. In the final verse of our text today, verse 49, we read, And just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, so shall we bear the image of the heavenly man. And a few verses before, in chapter 15, verse 21, it says, As in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. How can one man change the world? Adam betrayed God and plunged the world and all of humanity into curse and suffering and death and darkness. But thanks be to God for the true and better Adam. We're going to come to the Lord's table. If you believe your only hope is in the atoning death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, then you are welcome at this table. If you don't believe that, then please let the elements pass and see me after the service today. I'd love to chat with you. On the night he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread, and after he had given thanks, he broke it, saying, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for the forgiveness of sin. Do this whenever you uh, do this in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. They're going to pass out the uh, elements. Please remember to take two uh, cups, both the bread and the juice. And while we wait, let's each consider the ways we have been wearied and burdened under the heavy yoke of Adam's inheritance. And remember Christ's invitation from Matthew 11, 29, and 30, where he says uh, we can find rest for our souls because his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Let's pray and then we'll take the bread together. Father God, we uh, confess that like our father Adam, we have sinned most egregiously. We've doubted your goodness. We've been prideful and selfish. But we thank you, O oh God, that you did not give up on us, that you saw the suffering and pain we caused, and you sent your son to join us and to take the sin of his enemies so that we might finally know peace with you. Thank you, O oh Father, for your mercy and your love. 
take and eat. O Christ, our Lord and our Redeemer, our inheritance in Adam was pain, suffering, and death, but by pouring out your blood, you, O Christ, suffered to break the curse and make us heirs of a new family with a new father and a new home. And now, rather than infinite darkness, we inherit infinite love. Rather than destined for dust, you have given us a new destiny that we might be conformed to glory with you for eternity. Thank you, O Christ. Take and drink. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would fill us this week, that you would remind us day by day we no longer in the grip of Satan and sin, no longer locked into Adam's inheritance, but we are free in Jesus Christ. And so in the name of the true and better man, the, the true and better Adam, in the name of Jesus Christ, we pray we would know the power of God working in and through us, for us and with us. In his name, amen. If you'd stand, we'll uh, do a quick benediction. We close with a paraphrase of Romans uh, chapter 5, verse 17. Brothers and sisters, go now with the certain knowledge that in Christ you have received God's abundant provision of grace and that the gift of righteousness will reign in your life now and forever through the one man, Jesus Christ. Go forth blessed to be a blessing. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.